sexual immorality among you, once Corinthians and now Californians, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, and really leaven, works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he'd already written them. This letter has been lost to us, but so he's had correspondence with them, dealing with immorality in a very immoral city. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Um, I read a line recently that says a pure church is a powerful church. An impure church is a paralyzed church. If there's a practice of biblical holiness and purity, it becomes a powerful tool. God doesn't use dirty vessels to get his work done. He doesn't leave them, but he's too busy grieving in them to work through them. You've got to get right with God if he's going to work through you or else he's always working on you. Do you know the difference? He's either working on you or he's working through you. And when we're in sin, he spends his time working on us. I used to hear that he leaves an unclean vessel. No, that's not true. He doesn't leave you. He just stays there to keep you miserable. And if you're God's child, he will keep you miserable. And if you're not miserable, you don't know him anyway. Uh, You see, Christians can't get away with anything ultimately when the Spirit of God's in them. And and when we look at this chapter, you may think that uh, as we look through it, that leaders in a church are God's bounty hunters looking for some sheep to stone. But we're not God's bounty hunters. Uh, 
But we are shepherds called of God to help protect a fellowship. And so we get involved with a lot of uh, sick sheep. And so uh, we deal with all kinds of situations. Um, let's look at the situation. And we've got this outline there for you. If you want to take notes, what is the sinful situation being addressed? Uh, is, it a, is it on the rumor mill? Is he going after gossip? No, no. The word, it is actually reported. It means well reported. It's well documented about what's going on so much that even pagan neighbors, they know what's going on. There's no secret about this sin. It's not, did you hear, maybe supposition. No, this is, this is scandal. Everybody knows it in the neighborhood. The church saints know it. It's public. Uh, so do the surrounding community. So it's an open scandal. It, it's like what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church and all of this uh, misbehavior by the priest. I mean, the whole world knows it now. So it's not made up. So it's a sinful situation. And uh, what is the sin? A man has his father's wife. And in the Greek, it's the idea he's living with her. He's not just having sex with her, but he's, uh, the dad has either died uh, or he's stolen uh, the wife. It'd be hard to imagine his father still being alive in that culture. And he's violating, it's an incestuous relationship. Uh, According to Leviticus 18 is the first time we get legislation that says you can't sleep with your sister. You know, the question comes up, where did Cain get his wife? I think his wife was his sister. Where else would he get a wife? Well, isn't that incest? Not when there's no law. And when the genetic pool was pure, God didn't uh, object. Here we've got uh, men having sex with their daughters, usually drunk. It wasn't, that wasn't prescribed, but it happened. But for sure, the Cain question comes up. But when you go on down in history, by the time you come to Leviticus 18, God says you can't have sex with family members. He makes it clear. And he names all kinds of family relationships. No incestuous relationship. Family is to be protected and sex is not to be practiced among them uh, to each other. So here we have a man that's clearly in incestuous sin and we have a quote from this century of Cicero that tells how the pagans frowned upon incestuous relationships and marriage and sex among family members with one another. So it was frowned upon in society. This is scandalous. That, this is not iffy. This is not, well, my opinion versus, it's clear cut. Everybody is, knows it's wrong, but not everybody is doing anything about it. And so the situation is just blatant. Uh, it's outrageous. It's more than uh, fornication. It's more than having sex with your girlfriend here. This has gone to a different level. Uh, So it's an outrageous sin uh, going on in that community. Now, uh, what's worse is the uh, church's response to it. Uh, Notice what he says, and you are proud. Proud about what? Uh, you are so proud about your party spirit and about taking me on 
that when pride comes into a church, they can tolerate almost anything because we're so puffed up and we're so good and right. It's a humbling thing to have to deal with sin or to admit that it's among a a bunch of saints that was founded, hear me now, this church was founded by the apostle Paul. He must not have taught enough doctrine. No, no, any church can do this. Any of us are capable. I was taking a class in San Francisco on pastoral theology, and one day they were dealing with the subject of church discipline, and I remember how the guys were going on. If you'd only teach the word, you wouldn't have these problems. And I was pastoring a church that was dealing with a man in adultery. I said, well, Paul must not have founded the Corinthian church on the word of God. No, no, no. As long as there's been Christians, there's been sin and there's been problems. So uh, let's don't get cocky like, well, just teach the word here. It won't happen here. Anything's liable to happen. It's how we respond that God's going to really look on and say, hey, can't be a true church and have sin in it. Well, I guess the Corinthian church, he called them saints in chapter 1. Figure that out. You are saints in Christ Jesus. I love the quietness, and that's good. Um, that he goes on to say they've, been, they've become arrogant. Uh, they're boasting in verse 6. Uh, they're doing nothing. They've taken the position of passivity and uh, just uh, bury it, as it were, ignore it, go on. And it's very convenient in a city like Corinth or the Bay Area, not to do anything because the motto is everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's doing it. How could we ever raise up any opposition to it? Uh, And so they say to be a Corinthianized, they use the word, they coined a term, Corinthianized meant to be immoral. It's like so many people, when I'm in Dallas or somewhere, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Ooh, man. They just immediately, whew, are you? I said, Man, have you ever seen the Golden Gate? Oh, no, there's a lot more going on in the Golden Gate. They immediately identify the lifestyle and the sexual promiscuity of the area, and they just say, how can you pastor there? What do your people do? I said, well, we have quite a few babies in the nursery. So somebody's having sex. Got any problem? But it doesn't mean we're all in this lifestyle. See, so it's a, that's kind of what Corinth is like. Um, a sinful, what, what should their response have been? Uh, their response should have been uh, that they should have been grieving. And you notice that? He says, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And this is the kind of grief of a funeral. I mean, it, it's like someone's died. And uh, the church can either at times represent a feast or a funeral. And there are times in this church where if you thought you were attending a funeral because uh, a brother or sister was in sin and a bunch of us were in grief. Uh, sin brings grief. Uh, sin is like death to a family member. Uh, and it, 
you know, you like to think, uh, we don't want that to get out in our community that somebody is causing this whole church to grieve. Now, guess what the greater problem is? You don't give a damn. That's the greater problem. I don't care. They can do what they want to do. I'll do what I want to do and don't want to be bothered. I just go to hear a sermon, go home, and I can't get involved. I can't allow myself to be touched. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I thought you were in the body. I thought you were a member of Christ's body. I thought if sin touches one part, it touches all of us. That if one suffers, we all suffer. If one's made to rejoice, we are not immune from the problems of the body. I remember reading Warren Wiersbe when Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker, all these men fell into sin and everybody was frying them. And he said a line that was a shocker to me. We must not say this happened to them. It happened to us. When is a man or woman in the body of Christ? When they don't sin or even when they do sin? It's family shame, family pain, and family grief. We should grieve. But churches don't grieve, so the spirit grieves, and it becomes quenched, and that lampstand begins to go out because God knows what's going on. Well, uh, they should have also, um, they should have been humble. Um, he tells them thirdly, or secondly, don't associate with these kind of people, and we'll get to that. And then, of course, ultimately, you ought to put a brother like this out of the church, assuming he won't repent, assume I mean, that he's going to stay outrageous. Put him out. He doesn't have the right to the fellowship. So when we grieve, we make a choice not to be closely associated with. It's going to be a quarantine of them. And then we choose by God's grace to put them out and let God handle them. So um, our response uh, the response is to do nothing, to be tolerant. And here's a tension, and we'll get to this in Q&A. Here's uh, two tensions that we live with in, all, in the church. And I've seen it among you when we've had discipline issues. You have what we call, I call the, the compassion crowd. Don't they need compassion? Could, shouldn't we do more? And they're usually the people that haven't been involved with the leadership who have spent months trying to talk this person out of their sin. And they just hear it. They say, where's the compassion in this church? Where's the love? And then those who do it are saying, oh, those legalists, those self-righteous, where is their heart for God? Because compassion, sloppy agape looks so wonderful. It's just like a spoiled brat kid. What they need is a good spanking. And you're over here saying, oh, he's just expressing himself. And I'm saying, don't bring him to my house. Let him ruin yours. My dad had a way of controlling self-expression. You know, no discipline. You see, I, I've, I've seen a generation that doesn't believe in discipline. All the children and, and the little, uh, little lions running around. No, they've never been loved enough to be disciplined. See? And so here, he's saying you should have grieved it. And then he goes through here and he says, let me tell you some things. Uh, 
I want to do. I am gathering with you in a church meeting, verse 3. I'm not physically present with you. And Gordon Fee says he's actually there in the Holy Spirit, which uh, I'd never heard before. But he's there in spirit. And he said, I've already passed judgment. Now, Q&A, we want to come up with this one. I thought we were told not to judge. And now he, he passes judgment. That's a good one because we're going to come to chapter 6. It says we ought to be judging the affairs of the church. Well, I just said, I thought back in chapter 4, 3, we're not to judge. We're not to judge a man's ministry, not to judge his motives, but we are to judge, and we'll discuss that later. Paul said, I've already judged him as if I were present. And when you're assembled in the name or in the authority of the Lord Jesus as an assembly, I will be with you in spirit and in the power or authority of the Lord Jesus, and we will hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What a powerful, debated passage. What is he saying? I'm going to come together according to the Matthew 18 passage where Christ says, if two or three of my people will come together to do what's right towards a brother that will not repent, I'm going to be there and we're going to bind him and we're going to loosen him and put him out into the world put him out of the fellowship and get him out there in satanic territory so that Satan can inflict all the pain he'll be able to stand. Just like he did on Job, just like the thorn that tormented Paul. For different, God can use Satan to do some dirty work and to discipline you. There's something about being under the umbrella and the safety of a local church in Paul's view that if you're put out of it, you are subject to satanic interference, satanic uh, whatever you take destroys. Some take it to be they're killed, uh, not necessarily. They all probably wish the Lord would kill them. But I think they put themselves in great harm's way. So get them out there. You want to act like the world? Get out there. Have all of it you want. God will destroy you in one way or the other. He will wean you of this sin if you're his. If you're not his, you'll just keep going and we'll never hear from you again. Ultimately, we're hoping that the severe pain will lead to a repentance because we believe you could be saved in the day of the Lord no matter what you've done. As long as God works in your heart and changes you, Our goal and our hope is that you on the day of the Lord will ultimately be saved, but you're going to go through some great pain to get you to get right. And once again, if the pain doesn't work, you probably give proof you weren't really a saved person. You were just ruining the church. Then he says something. uh, Your boasting's not good. And he uses a Jewish uh, picture here of Christ our Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And let me explain what this means. That when they came to Passover, they would get rid of all the uh, yeast in the house, but they really didn't have yeast as a product. They would have some bread that had been fermented with a little bit of yeast. And what they would do once a year is get rid of all of it, and they would start the new year with a new batch. Uh, One thing would be hygiene, but the symbolism of it is 
Get rid of everything that is polluting, that has bacteria, anything that can permeate or influence. And he's saying to the church, now I want you when you come together, act like you're celebrating the Passover and you're celebrating Christ our Lamb who's been crucified. And I want you to get rid of all that is leavening the church, that is uh, influencing it, wickedness, malice, sin. Uh, Other words, don't be celebrating a crucified Christ while you continue in your sin. May the celebration of Christ as your Redeemer be reflected that you take sin serious enough to scourge it out, to flee it, to break from it. And so he says, God's called us to a perpetual feast But you can't have the feast with malice and wickedness going on in your heart. You can't enjoy the Savior while you're endorsing sin. Clean house. Clean house. Because we've come to celebrate a crucified Christ. Get rid of the sin. That's what he... And he's just using what any Jewish believer would certainly understand. Clean your house to celebrate God's deliverance of you. And many times, that's exactly what God's saying to you personally. Some of you might be personally tampered in sin and nobody knows about it. I say to you on the authority of this, if Christ is your Savior, when will you clean house? When will you get your mouth cleansed and quit being a slanderer? When will you quit being a gossip? When will you quit cussing? When will you get your act together? When are you going to burn up those playboys? Quit telling me you're struggling with pornography. You can just turn it off. It's a decision. It doesn't just come over the screen and grab you and pull you in. Somebody turns it on. Somebody picks the choices. Um, I just say, Lord, leave me wherever. Oh, there she is. No, no, no. It's a choice. You're making provision to do it. Make no provision to fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's saying, take Christ serious enough to do something about your sin. Then he goes on. Uh, I've written you in my letter, and he's uh, uh, now going to try to clear up some misunderstandings. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, which means you have to move out of the Bay Area. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Now, I would say this. He gives his permission to be with them, but do you want to run with swindlers? I mean, you can. He says you can. You can associate. You may work with them. They may be your neighbor. Uh, You can have a meal with them. Watch out, watch your wallet, and watch your wife. But you can meet with them, can't you? Now, now this is the problem with, I think, as in the church. We get so holy, we don't think we could ever have contact with unsaved people without being contaminated. We're in the world, we're not of it, and part of our isolation is we don't meet with anyone that desperately needs God. And they might be a hell's angel. Would it bother God if he had lunch with a hell's angel? I don't think so. Now, if he's a deacon, that's something different. 
See, that's why, to me, I can relax the most when I hope everybody in the room's unsaved because there's no standards to enforce. Help yourself. I have no responsibility. I'm just, I watch my wallet and I hold my wife close. But, because I know that crowd. I know how they are. I grew up with them. I mean, just watch out and, and watch that they don't cold cock you because they like to fight. The rowdy bunch, the rednecks in San Pablo were. Man, they were a rough bunch. I know, I know exactly. But you know what? No authority. Then all of a sudden I meet a believer. I, I, I'm having lunch with this guy one day and, and we're driving back and he says, you know, I want to give you something, but I bought it while it was stolen. Will you accept it? I think, you're kidding. You're kidding. No, no. He, he, he said, you know, I got it hot, but I can give you a good deal on it. He's going to our church, you know. I said, no, no, he, he's kidding. He, he, he's, he's not serious. And it was an answering machine. And I, I said, wait, 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 wait. I'm from Richmond. I said, hot refers either to chicks or stolen goods. I mean, wait, let me get it. So you're giving me a chick? No, no. I'm giving you a stolen item, but I got a good deal on it. Well, I hope you did. But use it for Jesus. I want to give it to you. Lord, bless this stolen item. Use it for you. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name. And then he, then he starts telling me how he's living with this chick. And, I, and you know, I'm just a young pastor. You didn't tell me what I just heard, did you? I said, you, you, you say you're living with her? You mean you live in the front room and she lives in the... He said, you're kidding. He said, bedroom rights go with it. I said, are, are you married? No, no, I'm a Californian. <laughs> well, here we go. So th- that just gave me cramps, you know, because I got to do something now. And we did. Uh, but here's where he's clearing up he writes this letter, don't be running with immoral people, and everybody in Corinth seems to be immoral. So he says, man, who are we going to run with? He says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I'm specifying, I'm writing you that you must not associate, and this word associate is a constant, intimate uh, interaction. It's not just contact. It, that you're very actively engaged with them socially. Uh, don't actively be involved with people who name the name of Christ, claim to be a brother. They may not be, they may be, but they name the name that is sexually immoral, okay? This is a brother or a sister in the Lord. They claim it. And they're greedy. And the word greedy here is not they just want it, but they would break any boundaries to get it. It's strong. It's not just I want more, but I would break the rule. Cheating on taxes, let's say. Uh, cheat a little bit here. Because if I want it, I could justify getting it. Uh, and that's what that greedy means. Idolater, and he's going to deal with this, I'm going to idol temple services. Uh, I, I'm multi-religion. Uh, you know, greed is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. But I think he's probably talking about 
just visible. I run with the uh, Idols Temple crowd a little bit. I go to their meetings, and then I come to these meetings. If they're practicing idolatry, and you know that, don't associate with them. Uh, or a slanderer. Now, we always go after sexual sins, but we seldom go after sins of the mouth. People can just, we've probably seen more churches torn up by an out-of-control mouth than an out-of-control body. People just talk, slander, run down, murmur, complain, undermine, put the leadership under suspicion. Hey, that you're doing devil's work. The word slanderer is the word for devil. And he called the women in 1 Timothy 5 that were in gossip circles, he called them she-devils. You're she-slanderers. Stop it. We can't run with you. We disciplined one couple out of this church because he couldn't get his wife's mouth shut up. And so we put him out of teaching and we put him, we recognize him for the church. She's a slanderer and a liar. We want you to know that. And the guy got mad. They found another church. That's what we do today. If you repent and stay, they just go find another church where they treat him a lot nicer. Went down there and she ran off with another man. And her character was truly exposed. He, he got mad at us because he thought we were picking on his wife because he couldn't admit she was such a slanderer. But she was, and unless he got saved, still is. A drunkard. Now, he's writing to a wine-drinking culture. There's no cultures in the Bible that are not wine drinkers. So he's not talking about drinking wine. He's talking about people who get soused, out. I mean, drink, drink until they're intoxicated, they're drunk. He's not talking about people who socially have a glass of wine. He's talking about people who are intoxicated. Swindler, of course, anyone that will um, uh, steal and rob. Then he says, with such a man, do not even eat. Oh, boy, this is really giving folks fits. What in the world does that mean? Well, on the surface, it looks like don't eat with them. Do you need the Hebrew on this or the Greek? Yeah, let's get, let's get deep. Eat. Eat is a present active indicative third person singular from the verb squash. I don't, it says don't eat with them. Now, there's different views out there. One, they say, don't let them at the love feast. Well, it doesn't say the love feast, but I would certainly think that's included. They had a love feast before the Lord's Supper. Then they say they shouldn't be given access to the Lord's Supper. I should say so. Be very obvious. But it seems to be when he does not want you to associate intimately with them, don't be having interaction. And a meal in this culture represented friendship, uh, trust, it was, it was not casual eating like we may do. I see somebody, you can see them at a, you know, fast food place and just have, no, it was a big deal to have a meal and to have those that you would eat with, something was involved here. It's usually friendship, intimacy, closeness. Do not even eat with them. And uh, uh, this is real tough when you have family members that are involved in sin. We've had people wrestle with this 
can I be at a meal? My sister's going to be at Thanksgiving. She's living with a man, claims to be a believer. Can I go to the meal? Well, if your mom and dad's putting it on, please be there. The intruder, I wouldn't miss that. You've got to find some wisdom here. Uh, you're not intentionally having meals with these people. I don't think it ever means if we see them in public that we act rude or embarrass them. We just cannot have intimate uh, interaction. And we avoid that, those things that beget friendship because we want to quarantine them until God does his work in them. And if God decides to destroy something in them, you want to stay far enough away from the lightning when it hits that it doesn't hit you. So what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Now, I think you can speak against social injustice, but we don't have any authority, any power. Are you not to judge those inside? I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Uh, Well, we'll we'll look at that. Here he says we're to judge. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now, I just raised some discussion questions. The most quoted verse in the Bible today is Matthew 7. Please turn there. I'll kick this off. This first question, then we'll take an offering. So we can, if you've got any questions, write them down. If you totally disagree, we'll burn them up. Uh, look at uh, Matthew uh, 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for by whatever judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And then I've got to look at it after that. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What is he saying? The Pharisees were authoritative judges and they were judging the people. They were taxing the people. And Christ comes and says, judge not that you be not judged. And he qualifies it. You don't have the right to judge people when your problem is bigger than theirs. You're blind, and you're trying to do eye surgery. You've got a plank, they've got sawdust. Two, you're hypocrites. You don't do the law of Moses anyway. You're not a practitioner of truth, yet you're judging people. Now, notice this. Explain this to me. If I come to a group of people, and I'm to obey Christ when he says this, Verse 6, how do I obey verse 6? Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. How can I obey that verse? I'd have to be able to recognize a dog. Wouldn't I? But now, is he talking about visiting the Sioux? 
And don't throw the giraffes your food. Oh, there's the pig department. Don't be throwing out Bible truths to the pigs. He's describing human nature. It's rather brutal. You're not looking, are you? You don't believe me. Look at the verb. Look at it. Look. Don't stare at me. I didn't write this. Do not give dogs what is sacred. I never give sermons to dogs. Jesus, why would you say this? He's talking about audiences, people who will not value what you have to share, but they will uh, trample them as hogs or uh, just bark at them as dogs. Or they, they, in other words, don't take divine truth and give it to people that you see rejected, have no appetite for it, aren't ready for it. Don't do it. Now, you have to make a judgment. It's unavoidable to obey the verse. So this favorite verse today, which says people want to make it this way, you have no right to judge. So while the guy's robbing me and he's taking my wallet, don't call him a thief. That'd be judging him. All I know is I might no longer have my wallet. Well, I stay spiritual. Uh, He frisked me, but I'm broke. I lost all my credit cards. Well, he has a good heart. Well, he was a good-hearted frisker thief then. No, you use the word thief. You cannot call him a thief. What you forget is this. God is the supreme judge. And when the supreme judge calls something, if the supreme judge says this is a watch and I call it what he calls it, am I making the judgment or am I agreeing with God's judgment? If God says something is a sin, am I the judge arbitrator or am I following the judge's decision? The church is supposed to be people who follow divine legislation and the judge, the judge of all the universe whom every man is going to face ultimately and stand and he said, I'm going to judge you according to truth Romans 2, I'm going to judge you according to your deeds, not your profession. I'm going to do fair judgment, but I would judge you by my law, and I'm going to expose you. Did you call it what I did? Because I'm not a crooked politician, and I'm not a crooked lawyer that can change all the terms, and just through the art of sophistry and through the art of law can make you can win a guilty man a pardon just because he's sharp with the law. But God says, I'm not a double-tongued lawyer. I call it what it is, and you will be judged by that. Now, church, follow divine legislation, and you leave the judgment really in the hands of God. Whatever he calls it, we should call it. Brothers, let's take an offering while we can still get them to give. Where are you? Come on. And in this, if you have any questions, uh, we hope that you may have filled them out. Don't write them on the offering envelope. We'd appreciate that. And then uh, turn them in as we take the offering. And uh, we'll take, uh, uh, we'll see if you have any questions. I just want to be fair to you. Take 10 to 15 minutes if you have them. Okay, let's come up and we'll have a word of prayer. 
Our Father, we pray that we are now go to school, use our minds to think and to uh, try to see how we are to carry out the Word of God in such an immoral culture as we live in and in such an age of, uh, oh, uh, tolerance. Nothing's absolute. Nothing's for sure in the culture. No wonder they can tolerate so much. We just pray, bless the, the offering. Make your people givers because they're obeying the divine judge who is also our father and the giver of the beloved lamb, the lamb who died for us. Bless this offering, we pray in Jesus' name. What we do in this church uh, in matters that uh, require discipline after we have sought to restore people, try to talk them out of their sin, turn them around. If they refuse that, uh, what we do is at communion services, which we ordinarily do uh, one Sunday night a month. It's at the Lord's Supper that we notify the church of what the leadership has tried to do, try to turn a person around. And uh, so we use that time to notify the church and the elders and deacons and whoever's involved uh, 
have to do a lot of investigation and work behind the scenes. And it's also the place where we uh, receive back into fellowship those who repent and those who are restored. And uh, I think uh, back on the history of our church, there's been times I think we did discipline uh, where we maybe uh, got ahead of ourselves that it didn't need to be because the person had repented. Uh, if a person repents and it's not known to everybody, see, when you've had a sin that's church-wide like this, for sure the church needs to know. Sometimes sin, people uh, fall into sin, fall into adultery, whatever, and they repent. The Lord breaks them down. They may come to one of the pastors. Uh, some of us pray with them. We don't, know, we don't notify the church because they, they've, they've repented. They've been restored. We go on. It's unrepentant because the goal of all discipline is restoration. It's not a Gestapo. We're not, and when it's, we don't, and, uh, I don't know how long you've been here, but I just want to clarify. We're not in this atmosphere, we hope, and we'll look at this when we get to chapter 6. If a brother or sister's overcome in a sin, it doesn't say call the elders, turn them in, and see if we can discipline them. It says, you who are spiritual, just the two of you, if you'll get involved, you may be God's instrument to restore them on a personal level, and it goes no further, right? That's what we would hope, is that if I was in sin, that a brother or sister in the Lord would see it and say, boy, that, you got a, man, you shouldn't have said that, or you got a wrong, at, and, and correct it on that level. Uh, discipline is what you have to do when there's outrage, unrepentant, and I'm going to do it. What are you going to do about it? Then you go to the whole church. Let's see some of these questions. Yeah. Now, if I can't read your writing, we won't read your question. Uh, should we rebuke unbelievers? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, it all depends on what size they are. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're going to say, it's none of your business. <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, you, you and I have not been commissioned to be the, uh, uh, the police of the universe. You can see this stuff. No, uh, what, what am I going to, uh, in a way, I don't know all that you've got going that might be a family member. Let's say it's one of your children. Well, I'd rebuke them as my child whether they're a Christian or not, because of your relationship. It would depend on your relationship. Do they see you as a viable person in their life? And I think with friendship, there comes some permission. But let's say you're working with someone on the job, and all of a sudden, hey, me and my boyfriend are living here, and we're getting drunk on the way. Well, did you know it's wrong to get drunk? Uh, I'd say, don't tell them that. Don't, that's none of your business. Their problem is greater than getting drunk. They need Christ. And so uh, let's, let's keep this in the church. We're talking about uh, taking care of ourselves. Uh, and remember, when you're out there in the world, you don't have to ask them what they do. You don't want to know. What you want to do is give them good news. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Don't take on their ethics. Don't take on their morals. The, that, that's none of our business. That's none of our business. And whether you like it or not, I don't care what lifestyle, none of our business. Just love them for Christ. Um, 
Does Paul's teaching to not associate with Christians who are sexually immoral, greedy, etc., apply to Christians that don't go to the same church as us? For instance, a neighbor, a coworker. Ah, uh, when I, okay, we're going to go quick here. Uh, well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I think it it applies to whoever names the name of Christ. I I think that's what the passage would. Of course, it's working out the setting of a local church. And see, that's the problem in our day. Uh, if people don't like what we do here, uh, they go to another church and they'll be received in full membership without a question. And then they'll call us self-righteous Pharisees. And, but when you think in Corinth, there was only one church in Corinth, probably. And so you had to get it right there. I wish that it was that way here. Or at least Southern Baptist and some churches... Uh, they'll send a letter for the person that wants to join that they're in good standing. I think it has a validity. It's a good thing. Um, so I, I would take it to anyone who names the name of Christ. How do we as Christians uh, lead others to Christ if we are not to associate with those who are sinful? Remember, he didn't forbid you to associate with those in the world. Isn't that what he said? That's what he's trying to clarify. It's with brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so that's a slanderer, that's immoral, and living in open sin and, and just think they're having a ball. That, that's the sphere he's dealing with. Uh, a sin is a sin. Uh, no sin has more weight than other sin. And, uh, well, I disagree on that. Uh, a guy, I just seen a guy cuss me as kill me. There are different kinds. I, I'd rather a guy lust for my wife than rape her. And the law thinks there's difference. That's an oversimplification of sin. Um, my closest friend brought me to Valley, became involved with another man while married, refused to repent, and was put out of the church. This was over 10 years ago. It broke my heart. My husband and I were dear friends of both husband and wife. I was in contact with her for a time, but eventually, uh, based on pastoral counseling, I broke off communication. Over all these years, she has continued to keep con uh, contact once a year by mail. I do not respond. Question, am I wrong to keep this up or after all these years? Should I reconnect with her? Uh, she and the man she was involved with are now married. I guess I still feel bad not answering the letters. Answer the letters. That's not too much contact. And uh, I think the thing you would want to see, people can repent and be restored. That's the thing I'd be looking for. Did she ever get right with the Lord? Or are they uh, flouting this kind of lifestyle? But uh, I think you did the right. If you did it from, uh, in obedience to the Lord, because all we're trying to do is using the leaven illustration, sin is like cancer. The more you tolerate, the faster it grows. And it just permeates, so you've got fellowships. They can't ever oppose any sin because, well, we, we let that one get away with it. Well, we didn't do anything about this, and pretty soon you're a hypocrite if you discipline on any level because you don't take sin serious. So I, I admire your uh, willingness to obey and I think a letter. See, we, we're not called to be snotty. 
We're not called to be mean. We're trying to restore you. And we've got to acknowledge your offense against the Lord and your refusal to repent. It's not the sin as much as the refusal to repent because any of us could fall into any sin this week. Now, I would hope you would confess it, repent, and be right with God before you came back next week and nobody's having to get in your life. You and the Lord worked it out. He tells us in chapter 11, judge your own sin. Judge yourself. Do you do that? Lord, I got a rotten attitude today. Amen. And Lord, I I confess it to you. Change my heart, my attitude. Lord, I'm sure glad you're not going to put my heart on the PowerPoint this morning because it's it's full of yuck. Good. Now, that's the only reason some of you, and some of you, the reason you don't get to worship during the service, you never confessed it and the yuck is still there and you think everything's wrong with the service. No, your heart's messed up. You didn't come prepared to worship. You came in sin, so you're critical. Repent. That's what I see the great value of prayer time before services. I know schedules don't permit it, but I grew up in that tradition. And what the prayer time usually did for me, I got my heart right. I dealt with the distractions, the anxieties, maybe an unconfessed sin. And I, by the time I came into the meeting, I was ready to worship. But today, you see people, they get in here the last minute. Uh, they run over one of our widows out in the parking lot trying to get her parking space. They box the kids and, and, and get in there and say, no, Jesus, we love you. Man. First um, Corinthians 5, Paul says he has passed judgment on the one. How can we judge others when we all have sin in our lives? We are all guilty and worthy of judgment. All right, there's the classic line. So let's don't do anything. Now, Paul, was he sinning, judging? No, he's doing exactly. He's going to tell us in chapter 6, saints, judge. Be here. I, I didn't think I'd do it on Mother's Day. I told pastor one year I preached a sermon on Mother's Day on discipleship, and the text was, unless you hate your mother and father, you are not worthy to be my disciple. So I thought I might not do that this Sunday. Hate your mother. Look at her. I can't stand you. So, and a guy came up to me that brought his mom, said, thanks, Pat. I mean, the corsage had wilted. I mean, he, just, he said, man, I bring my mom to get built up. You told me, hate her. I said, well, maybe the wrong text for the occasion. Uh, no, you're going to find out this is the myth. Because I'm a sinner, I can't judge another man's sin. Can I call it what God calls it? There's the thing. I can't make the standard. I don't make it. But can I follow the standard? If God tells me to do this, it's like God actually entrusts babies to sinners. How can they not be warped? We're stuck. And and all church life is led by men and women that are sinners. So the whole thing's a a pot of sin. Not, Not so. Because God empowers his people to do things his way. But, that, but I think that's the common attitude. Just think of it this, if I call it what God calls it. See, I don't get to uh, determine that 16 ounces is a pound. I didn't get to set that standard. I, I didn't set the standard that 12 inches is a foot. But I can know if you gave me a foot worth or if it weighs a pound. I, I, it, it doesn't weigh a pound. Don't, who are you to judge? 
Uh, Weights and measures determine that. I'm just following. And you and I are under divine legislation or we're left up to our own subjective feelings, our emotional bents, our view, and we get all this gooey, sloppy stuff and nobody does anything. You can just fold up in a church because nobody, they're too spiritual to get involved. And the Word of God says, no, they're too proud, they're too arrogant, and they're too disconnected to want to get involved. They're living in disobedience. And that's why many lampstands called churches. He said, Ephesus, you repent or I'm going to remove you because the church isn't yours or my property. It belongs to God. And so you've got to do church the way God says, whether people like it or not. And that's the only way I can be. People say, man, you get right into our face. I'm sorry, I think. But I want to say, if God says it, I'm not going to apologize. It's on him. And and we shouldn't be having church anyway, but we're here 39 years later. Well, uh, one more for Mother's Day. Let's see. Uh, uh, Why did you endorse Obama, uh, who has not, is not a Christian. Well, I didn't know I endorsed him, but thank you. Uh, how does God feel about homosexuality? Well, now, how would you answer that? Uh, maybe get a copy of San Francisco Chronicle. Well, where would you go to answer that? First Corinthians 6, 9. Some of you were homosexual, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed. Uh, he that practices these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither a womanizer. We're just as much against adultery as homosexuality. So their sin is sin. But who's going to call it? The culture or God? And if you're not a Bible-packing, Bible-believing, Bible-practicing Christian, you're going to cave into the culture because the church has always been counterculture. We've never been in step, and I don't want to get in step. I represent a king from another world, and we're under his legislation. We're under his legislation. 